You're now listening to a new episode of Gratitude Through Hard Times. Gratitude instills humility. Gratitude removes ego. Gratitude helps empower the best in others around you. Our goal is to guide individuals and companies to practice gratitude so you can live a longer, happier, and more successful life. Get ahead of life with connection and purpose. This is Gratitude Through Hard Times with Chris Shembra. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Gratitude Through Hard Times. If you have been a loyal listener of this podcast for multiple years, you probably recognize us as 747 Conversations. You are used to hearing amazing stories, bringing on great leaders to share the story of how gratitude has shown up in their life and made them the leaders they are today. We reformatted, renamed the podcast just a few short months ago when our newest book, Gratitude Through Hard Times, came out and hit number one on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. We wanted to bring you still the same conversations with a new updated name. Some of my favorite times of the week are when you message in your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns of this week's podcast guest. If you're new to our show, I want to give you a big old welcome. You've come to essentially a conversation that's taking place metaphorically and virtually around my dinner table. I got my start in food. I'm with a guest today who also loves food and got his start around food. And this is just a big warm hug. You're not going to get any go-to-market strategy or strategies of how you can hit your next billion or hire your thousandth employee, but what you're going to get is a pretty awesome, vulnerable look behind the hood of another one of our world's great leaders. I invite you to click that subscribe button before we really get into the podcast and look back through the episode archives as we brought on everything from Fortune 500 CEOs, Academy Award winners, Grammy Award winners, Super Bowl champions, and more to share their stories of gratitude. We're glad to have you for the journey. Today, we have a repeat guest. I mean, this guy is so cool. He said yes to coming on my podcast years ago when I was just a bowl of pasta sauce. (laughs) Wow. The way this guy cares about the world. It's incredible. Today, we have my dear friend, Sam Jacobs. Sam and I today are talking about his new book, Kind Folks Finish First, The Considerate Path to Success in Business and Life. He just hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list himself. It's on a hot tear going through his community. And it's all about helping you just do life and business the right way. Play a long-term game build relationships, not transactions, stop keeping the score, do as much as you can for other people and ask for nothing in return. This whole book's about gratitude and love and optimism and all the things he's used, giving you his playbook to help him build a $200 million business rooted in kindness, reciprocity, and compassion. He's the founder and CEO of Pavilion, formerly known as the Revenue Collective, formerly known as a quarterly dinner series in New York City 
which we're going to get to that story in a sec. He's held executive positions at a lot of the great companies you've heard of. The back of his book has got testimonials from the world's greatest authors, and he take time to be with us here today. So let's welcome him to the podcast. Sam, great to have you. Thank you, Chris. I'm excited to be here, and thanks for allowing me to be a return guest. A return guest and one of the best guests that we've brought on because I can tell you, folks, I read this book from start to finish and it's as good as you get. It's a vulnerable expose. It's filled with go-to-market strategies. It's filled with conversations about unit economics. If you're running a business or you're a revenue leader, you need this book. I want to quote a passage in his book. He says, Sam sitting here in this video, that he is grateful for all the people that fired him. He is grateful for the lessons they tried to share with him that he was too too stubborn to hear. And he shares gratitude for every single experience and failure that led him here to a place where he can truly enjoy his life and he's still young enough to do so. And so I'd love to start off our conversation not by asking our signature gratitude question that you've all grown to know and love that Sam asked or answered three years ago on our podcast. You can go back to the episode archives in the show notes below to hear his answer. But today I'd love to ask a more mature gratitude question because it's what he kicks off the book with. Sam, what's a moment of adversity that you've overcome in your life or career that probably none of our listeners know about that you're actually grateful for? Because you write about that a lot in your book. Well, Chris, uh, to the point, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the book opens on a scene. Um, it's Friday the 13th, October 2017. So it's about five years ago, over five years ago. And um, I was about to be fired. And at that point, it was the third firing not quite in a row. There was one little gap where I quit before being fired, uh, but it was the third firing and what would en- end up being four firings out of five jobs from 2010 to 2018. And, um, and that was, you know, what I write in the book and to the point about gratitude is that, you know, in those moments, and, and again, you know, my background, um, which, we, which, which you, uh, you referenced and alluded to, I've been building companies here in New York City for um, just about 20 years, I moved here for the second time in February of 2003. So a few months away from kind of my 20-year anniversary. And what had happened was that uh, as I was rising in seniority, my job, contrary to my expectations, my jobs became less and less stable, more and more volatile, and and less secure. And what I expected, I guess, when I started my career was that as you become more senior, you achieve some level of stability, of prosperity, of independence. And that was not happening for me, particularly as I became more senior. It happened when I was more junior that I worked one place for seven and a half years. But then from 2010 to 2018, it was a roller coaster ride. And most of the time ending in, in um, you know, firing, flames, heartache, tears, all of those, all of those, uh, all of those things. And so, you know, the, um, the book opens with this scene where I'm getting an email from a woman who is my CEO and it's just, I'd been trained, I'd been almost like, um, you know, learned helplessness, like a, a traumatized dog or something like that. Like I understood what the email meant. 
uh, almost implicitly because it's a very short email said, Hey, I didn't realize you'd be out today. Let's meet first thing Monday morning. And, um, me and my wife and my dog were driving down to a friend's wedding that weekend. And I, I could just tell, first of all, because this is not a person that likes that was a morning person. She normally came in at, you know, 10, 10, 30, 11. And so if she wanted to meet first thing Monday morning, that was a very bad sign. And I immediately understood that the weird trepidations and anxiety and, you know, the hairs that were on the back of my neck over the past couple of weeks at work were founded. We're not me being superstitious. They were not me being paranoid <laughs> or I was being paranoid, but accurately paranoid because I was about to be fired. And, um, that was a moment when, you know, because uh, I'd been fired, as I write, many times before. And in different times, I'd sort of, you know, I'd wallowed a little bit. I, I wasn't grateful for it. I didn't use it in any kind of way other than to kind of create some sense of existential dread within myself and, you know, create fear and terror. And this time, you know, I just resolved that I wasn't going to do that. That, that I was going to use this as an opportunity. I knew it was going to come. I wasn't going to let her catch me by surprise emotionally. I was going to prepare myself. But most importantly, I was going to use this as a launching pad to establish some level of independence, to establish some level of confidence, and to change the trajectory of my life and reorient it. And, and, and what I mean by reorient it is that, uh, you know, I, when you work at startups and you're working for, when you're, you know, when you're living above your means, a lot of things become really panicky and, uh, and, um, and really scary. And when you are living right at your means, it's pretty much the same feeling. And I had been living kind of right at my means and constantly, and I'm in New York city, which is run by money and run by power. And when you're doing that, you're constantly looking at the equity in your startup that you're working at and you're you know, if you're a senior executive, you probably have 1% or three quarters of a percent of ownership of the company. These are, you know, which can be a lot. And, and you're constantly doing the math of what's this going to be worth and how, and how am I going to get rich? And is this going to be worth $10 million or $1 million or $20 million or $50 million? And it's this constant never-ending conversation that you have with yourself. And the reason that I'd never kind of struck out on my own and started my own business was because I felt like, I wasn't qualified to build a software business and therefore I wasn't qualified to build a venture scale business, meaning like a really, really big, highly valuable business. And therefore any business that I started by definition would be a lifestyle business. And that's no good because I had to be world famous and I had to be, you know, super, super rich and control thing, you know, and just like I needed money as a concept, as like a confirmation mechanism for my own self-worth. And the point is, at that moment, five plus years ago, I decided I didn't care about those things anymore. I cared more about a feeling of just being independent. I cared more about um, believing in myself, establishing some level of stability for my, whatever it meant, right? Whatever it meant, however much money it was, what I most wanted was a sense of peace and a sense that I could work on my own things and they wouldn't be taken from me at the last minute. And so, um, very long-winded answer to your question, but all of that began, as I mentioned, Friday the 13th of October 2017. And that was a period where, as I wrote, and as you mentioned, I, I am grateful. I'm grateful for all of the negative things because they forced me through this gauntlet that I, that I ended up running, that where I merged on the other side with a much cleaner, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, 
uh, but a much greater sense of peace and a much better understanding of how to generate happiness in my life. And to your point, you know, uh, as I talk about and I write in the book, and I'm sure you you agree, Chris. You know, they say gratitude is the energy, uh, the frequency most harmonious with abundance. And um, once I stopped needing those things, right? Once I, um, my coach, he has this matrix where if you have high participation but low attachment, uh, you have a much greater sense of actualization. Meaning, once I stop needing the money and needing all of these things and needing all of these accoutrement and needing all of these indications of status and wealth and power counterintuitively in the way that the world works, that's when all of those things actually showed up on my doorstep. And so, um, you know, it was a really transformational journey and it began about five years ago. And that's sort of what I think of when I think of a time in my life when normally I wouldn't have been grateful for, but now I'm incredibly grateful for. You know, so many, Sam, first of all, you're a beautiful storyteller. And uh, just hearing the verbal oration of that, you know, the, the book's great, but, uh, you know, how, how you, you know, uh, you know, your, your audio explanation of it is phenomenal. Um, so I don't know if your coach helped you on storytelling techniques as well, but it was pretty awesome. The cool thing that you've mentioned in that story that, that I just find so important for our listeners is that I've, I've heard from some of our listeners that they only started their company when they actively quit doing something. And what I mean by that is they had this idea to start a company and they said, all right, I got to be the one to leave my employer and go do my thing because God forbid, you know, they got fired before they could quit. They would take it personally and go try to find another job instead of to boost their confidence, instead of go starting their own thing. You got fired and that inspired you to start your own thing. Well, to to build on something you had started in 2014. Um, but just for our listeners' sake, can you just tell me the one life hack that you negotiated before even accepting that job, which allowed you the runway to go pursue what you needed to pursue? Because I think it's a very interesting learning point. Yeah, well, uh, so this, this company that I run, Pavilion, it all started off, we called it Revenue Collective, right? And in many ways, the original incarnation of it was almost like a guild or a union. And one of the things that we were, I was teaching people and we were all learning together was how to negotiate, right? Because so one of the underlying themes of, um, of our community is that turns out I, I'm not super special in the sense that um, everybody was getting fired. It wasn't just me. Yes, am I particularly problematic and particularly ornery and grumpy and moody? Probably. You know, probably I skew more difficult to get along with as an employee than other people. But it turned out that the average lifespan of a high growth executive within our world of startups is just 17 months. And so we're getting fired all the time. And it was, and, and it was this idea that that 1% that I mentioned earlier, you're doing this math on 1% of 100 million, 1% of a billion. It turns out that it, not, it wasn't even like what, you know, it wasn't worth um, 10 million or 5 million or 1 million. It's probably worth zero because most of the time you're not going to be at the company long enough to realize any of those gains. And so I became good at negotiating. And, uh, and that's one of the lessons, you know, that I teach in the book, which is almost like a trust, but verify it's lead with kindness, try to do the right thing, but also, you know, do your due diligence, understand, you know, it's not, it's not a book about a free ride or a free lunch. It's a book about hard work plus compassion as a path to success, but not just compassion. So 
to answer your question, Chris, my last full-time job, I got successively better and better and better at negotiating. And so my last job uh, that I worked at in 2018, I, uh, it was a very small company. Uh, they were doing about $2 million in revenue when I joined, and they desperately wanted a chief revenue officer, and they only had two salespeople all over the world. And I said, are you sure you need a chief revenue officer? Maybe you just need to like hire a sales team. And they said, no, no, no. We've watched some of your YouTube videos, Sam. We've listened to your podcast that you host. And you're the person for us. We need you to be our CRO and take us to the moon. And so I, um, I thought about it. And this particular company, Eastern European founders, you know, uh, I like to say that you know, some elements of Russia and, and former Soviet countries, they are a pain culture. They're a, they're a misery culture, not a joy culture like the America. Like they would think it's completely ridiculous that there's a podcast talking about optimism and gratitude. You know, a lot of their perspective is it's dog eat dog and killer be killed because that's the world that they grew up in. But the point is, I said, okay, uh, I don't know that this is going to work. But, uh, and this is advice I give to many executives, right? It's not just about the company, it's also about the deal. If you can get the right deal, then it might make sense to work at a crappy company. And so I, I drew, I drew up this crazy, the craziest list of demands that I'd ever, because I, you know, I run this community, so I know what market compensation is. I know what you should be paid. I know what standard. And I added in all kinds of different wacky stuff. And one of the things I added in was that um, they would pay me an above market salary. At the time, it was $400,000 base salary and a $300,000 commission for full-on target earnings of seven hundred, dollars which is, for a $2 million company, is absolutely ridiculous. And um, but my, most importantly, I negotiated for 12 months severance beforehand. And one of the big things I, you know, again, I have trouble getting along with people. So, um, so I'm always advocating pre-negotiate severance. And a lot of executives say, well, it's kind of like a prenup. It feels unromantic to talk about getting divorced before you get married. And I say, yes, but again, 17 months is the average tenure. Uh, where you're leaving, you know, a stable position for something much more volatile. And, uh, and it's only fair. And so I negotiated for 12 months severance. Lo and behold, I started there in February. And by December, I'd been fired. Uh, and, uh, but, but that severance payment was the payment that essentially funded, you know, one of the points that I make in the book, we talk about liquidity and startup land, liquidity being, you know, like big moments where lots and lots of cash is wired to you, maybe because you sold your company, maybe because your company was acquired, maybe because you went public. Well, and there's another, there's all different forms of liquidity. And another one is a big $400,000 cash payment for getting fired for working someplace for 10 months. Um, and so, you know, that, um, so that was a specific, and that's what I try to layer the book with is specific tactics. Cause it's nice to be super general and it's nice to talk about, Hey, let's envision the future that we want to have. And, you know, let's do some future casting and let's make sure that we're practicing gratitude and compassion. But I also want to make sure there's specific practical advice for people that they can use to reduce really what it's about. It's not about the money. It's about reducing the level of anxiety you have when you show up to work every day. And it was because I've just been in so many different situations. And particularly, again, I, you know, I've worked at venture capital-backed companies. And, and the way that it works as a sales leader is you know, the first three months, it's just absolute honeymoon. You're so in love with this new CEO that you're working with. The culture's amazing. And then things start to change. And they particularly start to change because in the second half of the year, if you start at the beginning of the year, that's when your revenue targets really start going up like a hockey stick and become unrealistic. And so there's this shift that happens. And all of a sudden, one day, 
And I remember it happening at, at uh, the company that I reference in the book, where all of a sudden you just feel you just feel like people are looking at you a little different. There's meetings happening that you're not a part of anymore. Uh, you just start to all of a sudden feel that you're on the outside and you're not quite sure how it happened, but it's an acute sense of dread. And uh, that dread is is significantly mitigated when you know that if they decide to do something about it, they owe you a lot of money. <laughs> and so, you know, that's part of what I'm trying to help people with is just peace of mind in a difficult world. And and you do it in such a respectful way. I mean, um, at some point in the book, you um, you spend an entire couple pages breaking the myth of Chris Voss's great book, Never Split the Difference. Um, you, you essentially tell your readers life isn't a zero sum game in each to quote in each interaction. It might be okay to leave money on the table or do things for people that don't require immediate payback. So while you have the stories of having pre-negotiated your salary as a severance, you also have lots of anecdotes in the book about life, not being a zero sum game playing for the long term, um, and, you know, having a win-win situation with people. So you, you, you had started a quarterly dinner series um, back in 2014 that ended up becoming a lot of New York revenue executives. And that became um, a little bit more formal when you get fired and you're starting to build um, kind of a little bit of a thing. Um, in your book, you say, Doing what you love is not good advice because it ignores some obvious realities about the world. You say that there are three key elements to success. The first is what you're good at. The second is what you're interested in doing. And the third is where the market is moving. What made you dive so deep into the revenue collective turn pavilion? And then how did you know that the market needed that? And then what has pavilion become today? Well, um, a, a few different questions in there. So the first thing is, and I do, and I, I think the other point that I make, by the way, is not not just that what you're good at and what you're interested in, but I also think people misdefine what they're interested in. I think they're too cursory when they think about what brings them energy and what saps or drains their energy. But you know, for me, it was a thing of necessity. To be completely honest with you, right? I I was not feeling particularly employable, <laughs> so so I had. Um, you know, in that five years ago, what I mentioned being fired in the New Jersey Turnpike, I um, I decided at that moment, I wasn't yet ready to say I'm never going to work anywhere else full time again. But what I decided was that I'm going to uh, to create new revenue streams. I'm going to make some money on my own that I don't have to share with anybody else. And so I started a consulting business and I decided to charge dues. It had been a free community before then and I sold a sponsorship. And so all through 2018, that was the, the last time I worked somewhere full-time, and that was that great deal that I got. Um, I had revenue building in the background from these different activities that I'd been engaged in. And so finally, when I was fired for the last time, uh, uh, which was December 2018, so at this point, four years ago, uh, which, you know, can't believe it's, in some ways it feels like forever ago, and in some ways it feels like yesterday, um, I had enough of like a, a running start. It wasn't a cold start that I could kind of dive into. And then, you know, as much as I talk about the market and all that stuff, I, I it wasn't particularly premeditated in the sense that it was um, 
a point of necessity. I remember having breakfast with one of my mentors and I said, well, you know, if this doesn't work, I can just go back to working for somebody else again. He said, I think we've tried that experiment at this point. So <laughs> we had the data, that data wasn't working. And so I just decided to work on, you know, Pavilion, then Revenue Collective full time. And one of the great lessons that, and again, like the whole, the whole point of like the original, the beginning of the business is that I had let go of a lot of preconceptions. I had let, I wasn't even giving myself a permission structure to believe this could be a world changing phenomenon, right? Because it's a dinner club. There's already YPO, Young Presidents Org. There's already EO. There's already Vistage. There's a million different networking organizations and community organizations. There's no moat, you know, there's no like real competitive differentiator when you're starting. Once you get big, the brand can be a moat. Maybe the, number, the membership itself, the network effect can be a moat. But at the beginning, there's not much of a moat. And so it didn't seem like it was possible for it to be a super big idea, but I had let go of the need for that. I had said, I don't care if it's a super big idea. What I care about is if I can get to about 1,000 people and they're paying 2,000 bucks a year, then it's $2 million a year. And the way that that works when you're running your own business and you're deducting some portion of your rent and all of your business travel and all of your meals and every book that you buy and all of that stuff is that it's the W-2 equivalent of being you know, really, really well compensated. And so I said, I don't need it to be a huge thing or world-changing thing. It'll just be my thing. It'll be a thing that you can't fire me from. And I am going to make it about helping other people achieve their professional goals because that's what I want to do. That's where I derive energy. And I've done a process of reflecting on where I got energy and what I stood for, which I also outlined in the book. And so um, I just started working on it. And I guess the one thing, one of the, the interesting things that, that, that I've begun to articulate, you know, in the last couple of years is you, you know, if you read like Danny Kahneman or like, you know, any of these books about human psychology and human behavior and all of our broken heuristics, you know that humans are, you know, we have this loss aversion, you know, this loss avoidance kind of uh, paradigm, right? Where if you're making $50,000 a year, $100,000 a year, and you're looking at the prospect of building a new venture that is that has no definitive quantifiable outcome in the earliest stages, kind of all you can see is negative 100,000. All you can see is I won't have my salary and I don't know what I will have. And that's because upside, you know, theoretical upside is really, really hard to quantify. It's really hard to be tangible. By definition, it's risk. And so... Um, but what you don't realize is once you start, when, when you work for somebody else, you are, you're not even renting, you are selling forever your best ideas to somebody else. And that doesn't mean that it's a terrible thing. There's a bargain that's struck. But you don't realize what happens if you're, protect, you know, if you're a resourceful person. What happens when you stop giving your best ideas to somebody else and instead you devote all of your time and energy to giving yourself your best ideas? And oftentimes it's way more than you could have possibly imagined or expected, or at least it was in my case. And so I, this, I just, you know, I had a special feeling about it from the very beginning, to be completely honest, but it really took on a life of its own. It began to grow. And then, of course, you know, COVID came and changed everything. And, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen. March was supposed to be our, March of 2020 was supposed to be, you know, our biggest month ever. Um, and COVID came and we weren't sure if we're going to go out of business or what was going to happen. And um, it turned out that people needed community more than ever during COVID. And they needed virtual community because they were inside their home offices. They were at home the whole time. And so we actually grew 4X during COVID. 
And it was uh, a really incredible period. And, you know, again, where the market is moving, right? I'm not immune. I'm not such a special genius that I can reinvent the market. It's more that you can be in tune with the market if you, you know, if you embrace this idea that we have of listen closely, act quickly. If you can listen to what the market is telling you and try to respond and try to provide a solution rapidly, then you can be aligned with the market. It's a process. It's not, it's not just a static state. It's not just you either you're, you're with the market or you're not. It's how do you, how do you build a process through which you can listen? And the market's just your customers, right? The market's just like, this is a thing that people need and this is how they need it. And if you can synthesize that and give it back to them, then you could build something big. And that was the journey that, you know, that we're still on. It's, um, <clears throat> it's, it's a very empathetic approach. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy to say, uh, to listen to your customers and then build what they need. Um, it's very hard to do that in practice. And a lot of companies may preach that, but they don't do it, you know, quite in the way that you do it. And you offer so many practical tips of how to do that in your own book and how to think about your investment into things and the payback period from those investments and, and all these kind of things. And what it's ultimately helping people, the readers or these listeners do is play a long-term game, right? You just talked about that, um, you know, one of you that's listening on this call is probably sitting here in a, a VP or a director or a manager level position saying, what the heck would I do next year without what I got right now? And that's a very short term transactional way of thinking. But you outline that you should probably think the opposite. You should really, you know, you say most people underestimate what they can do in a quarter or overestimate what they can do in a quarter, underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Tell me about this long-term approach to living and relationships and life and business building, because um, it's it's really not about the goal. I mean, you're constantly underestimating the goals that you can hit. It seems even when you went out to go raise $25 million in funding, you were underestimating the value at which you could sell. Um, but you're over, you know, you're over-promising, over de- you're over-delivering on, you know, playing the long game and, and being you know, that from an honorable way? Well, it's, um, there's a bunch of reasons and I'm sure, you know, you talked, you showed me that book, I think Dory, is that her name? Dory Clark, the long game. Yeah. The long game. I, here's what I've learned, um, for a bunch of different reasons, uh, playing a long game can be a competitive advantage for you, right? Part of the point of the book is it's called kind folks finish first. It's not called the kindness principle. It's not called like kindness. It, why does it say finish first? It's because, and the publishers, Wiley, were like, you know, isn't it, isn't it really just about how you can feel good about yourself? It's a better way to live. And I said, no, these are principles for professional success. Like my point isn't that, you know, you get passed over for a promotion and you don't make the money that you're supposed to make, but at least you're a good person and you, you know, uh, you help that old lady cross the street. This is, these are principles for success. So one of the principles is long-term thinking. Why is that a principle for success? First of all, you're differentiated, right? The, everybody else is transactional. So many people in this world, the minute they do something, they need five bucks. They're always thinking about themselves. They, they, can't, they can't wrap their head around the idea that they're so scared to be taken advantage of that they can't understand that if they just invest a little bit and let the universe do its work, that they might get back way more than they could have even uh, imagined or anticipated. So they act like that. And if you can act different, then you can, you, 
you can be differentiated from them. Also, you know, there's something about, um, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea that to he who hath much more shall be given or to she. It's this idea that, and I mentioned it before, right? There's this concept of high participation, low attachment. See, short-term thinking is about attachment. It's about need. It's about dis- desperation. It's about, I have to have this thing right now, and I don't know what I'm going to do uh, if I don't get it. And um, the way that I found the universe to work, and I don't mean to be too wishy-washy, but you know, again, these are just principles that I found to be helpful. The way that I found the universe to work is that the less that you attach to a sp- certain outcome, the more that you create possibilities for outcomes that might even be better than that. And also, you manifest confidence. You, you, you know, people that need, people that are desperate, they project that out into the world and, and they impact how other people want to work with you. If you are always transactional, you might be pushing people away that don't feel like, they feel like maybe they're being taken advantage of, maybe they're being used, maybe they're being chiseled, maybe, maybe they, it feels like negotiating with you is a pain in the ass and, and they don't really feel like interacting with you. Whereas if you can be somebody that doesn't need all of a sudden, people are drawn to that because they want to know how you got that confidence, how you got that energy. So, you know, for, for me, it's, and, and so what are the things, so what are the mechanisms that allow you to think long-term? One of them is, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. It is, it is security. It is being able to have a roof over your head. If, you, if you're scared about where you're going to get your next meal from, then you probably don't have the ability to think too long-term, which is why you got to provide for yourself and your family first. And then once you do that, you know, then you can hopefully take a longer term view. But again, lots of people don't agree with me. Lots of people talk, and I actually think Chris Voss probably does agree with me. Uh, the never split the difference is probably a play, but I just, the phrase itself evokes this idea of zero sum mentality. There's lots of people that don't agree uh, that, you know, that you can not have to keep score, that if any specific negotiation, it's not about winning every negotiation, it's about building relationships over a long period of time. But for me, what I've found is that it's just the key to a different way of existing in the world that, that has, the, it just increases the likelihood that wonderful serendipity will happen when I don't need anything specific to happen tomorrow. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's beautiful hearing you, uh, hearing you say a lot of these things. It's, um, Adam Grant actually proved in his book, Give and Take, um, with his research study in 2,600 sales professionals, that givers are actually the most successful salespeople out there. It's research-based. It's evidence-based. So it is good to be that giver, um, to go out and be generous and build those relationships instead of transactions. I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, uh, I'm really good at giving and being generous and thinking long-term. I mean, especially when people are going through a really difficult time, I'll be the first to tell them, hey, let me donate our services for free to you. And you go in and you build a great relationship because you provide great impact with your services. And then somewhere down the line, whether it's five years or five months, they come back and say, you know what? I just thought of someone really good for you to meet or you know what? We finally got money back in the bank again. Let me pay you your full value and do some more stuff with you. So it always has a way of coming back around. So, uh, but even though I say that and I do that, I also struggle with the concept that you said of, of, um, you know, trusting that, you know, it like, like, um, I'm really good at, um, stepping into a room and, meeting, uh, 
So I'm really good at bringing people onto my podcast and meeting amazing people and then them like buying gratitude experiences from us and it like multiplying our revenue. Yet I don't have like an actual intentional like podcast strategy of saying, I just need to do more podcasts and that'll lead to more impact and more revenue. I sell myself short by saying, yeah, but if I do more podcasts, I'll have to pay the podcast editor more money. How short term is that? It's crazy. So anyways, what Sam's talking about, I hope you all saw yourself in. I know it sounds woo woo when he says manifest and he says universe, right? You know, we're talking angel numbers. I got my angel numbers of 747 literally tattooed on my, on my arm, but this stuff's real. You literally have, you literally have the success to back up what we're talking about. You raised $25 million in funding when you weren't even looking for it. Your company's valued at $200 million after only being in business just a couple of years, you say the thing that ultimately created my success was not the emphasis on what I didn't have. It was the joy of what I did have. Now you've had a tough life. You've gone through different breakups, different losses, different this, different failures, different firings, different that. How did you finally maintain or create a positive mental attitude they can help you get through all of this. And this is one of the questions we'll start closing out the podcast with. This is a big, big part of your book. Well, um, first thing I'll say, by the way, Chris, is that I'm not, you know, even since writing the book, I go through ups and downs. I talked about that in the book, you know. These are ideas that even I need to be reminded of sometimes. I need to come back to them and reorient and recenter myself. We, we should we should read our own books every couple of months. No shit. I believe that. Like I, it sounds so pompous to say that, but it's um and and so first things first, um you're right, I wasn't looking for the money. Uh I didn't even expect to be able to raise money. I used some visioning exercises at the end of 2020 which were eerily accurate. And it was about this, this, this exact deal that ended up happening just two months later. But one of the things that I really credit a lot of my evolution to is what I talk about in the book. So there's this moment in the book, I'm running down the West Side Highway because I go running a lot. And I'm with my friend Scott and he says, and, I, and he says, how's it going? And I start saying a bunch of negative stuff about how disappointed I am. And he asked me, does it help? And I say, does what help? He said, does con- the constant negativity, the constant diminishment of your own accomplishments, does that help? Does it get results, right? Not, is it true? Like, it doesn't matter whether it's true. This, we're not pursuing some Socratic notion or platonic ideal of what truth is. It's, does it help you get where you want to go? And when he puts it like that, for the cynical, practical people, which I was at the time, it's a very useful framing because it doesn't matter, you know, you're like, well, listen, uh, objectively speaking, I am a piece of shit. I appreciate the kind <laughs> words, right? But, <laughs> but, when, uh, but it doesn't help. And so I realized that the, the, the narrative inside my head, the dialogue I was having with myself um, uh, was, not, was not helpful to me. It wasn't helping me. And what I realized further, and this was on, this, the, the final epiphany came on the rooftop of the one hotel in 2019, in South Beach. I was there by myself. I was uh, the beginning of a separation, a year-long separation from my wife. And um, I just realized in this moment that I, I had not been kind enough to myself. And that not only kind enough 
in my head, but out loud. And so I realized that, you know, um, again, a little bit woo-woo or a little bit strange. I think we all sometimes assume that the voices in our head are speaking in complete sentences. That's in prose. It's like blocks of text in a paragraph. And that's not really how your voice in your head speaks, or at least it's not how mine does. Mine is half words, images, half-form thoughts. It's a mix of a bunch of different stuff. And so um, I realized that I needed to start out loud, uh, meaning writing it down and even talking to myself, being kinder to myself to retrain my brain. And so I started writing, I love you, Sam. I literally write, and I write that almost every day in different forms. And the first couple times I did it, it felt completely strange. And then as you get in the habit of doing it, it starts to feel more natural. And then, and then what happens is you actually start believing it. You actually start, it gives you the moment to reflect on who you are, what you are, whether or not. And what I realize is I have a lot of flaws. I'm obviously not perfect. The point of the book isn't that I'm perfect, but I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm proud of who I am. I try to do the right thing. I don't always do the right thing. I try to treat people well. I'm doing my best. And, uh, and it's a lot. I've written a book. I started a company. I put out music. Like, I, I, I've left my mark on this planet, and you know, hopefully I'm only halfway done. And so that's something to be proud of. And, and most importantly, I try to do the right thing. And so it's, it's just that recognition that like, that's okay. I didn't, I didn't take anything from anybody by being kind to myself, by saying I'm proud of myself. I didn't take anything. I'm not an egotistical jerk. This isn't about me versus you. This is just saying I love myself. And for the first time ever over the past couple of years, when someone asked, are you happy? I don't have to like think about it. And I don't feel self-conscious about it. I say, yeah, I'm happy. I am happy. I like who I am. I like the work that I'm doing. I love my wife. I'm doing my best. Everything's not perfect, but I'm working on it. And um, I really felt like that was pretty transformational for me. I really felt like that unlocked something that had been trapped, uh, which was just the acknowledgement that like, hey, you're pretty good. You know, you're pretty good. Uh, let me just hear you say it. I love you, Sam. <laughs> I love you, Sam. I love you, Sam, man. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I I read that passage in your book. Uh, it's centered around page 180. For those of you who are following along in the book with us, page 187 in the book. And I highlighted the whole sent, the whole page because I had a very similar conversation with my friend, Scott, in January of 2022, three days after my non-suicidal self-injury of December 30th, 2021. And so the fact that you got a Scott and I got a Scott, it was pretty neat. You write about Michael, um, the untethered soul in here, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember reading that passage, um, Read Sam's book, Kind Folks Finish First, and go out and get The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Um, the idea of like intrusive thoughts are not actually our thoughts. It's just like, I don't know. I, I can't describe The Untethered it's a crazy, Soul. It's a life-changing book. It's a life-changing book. It's wild. I mean, Dave Lindsay, Ben Wright, Sam Jacobs, three friends that have read and recommended that book to me. I got to go pick up and uh, read past chapter four of it. Um, he says this crazy thing. He says, you are not the voice in your head. That's not logically possible. The only thing logically possible is that you are the one listening to the yeah. voice in your head. Yeah. And, you know, you're just like, that'll, that'll last you for a 
couple of weeks thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> take, you know, go take a walk in nature and think about that one line, right? Because that, that's the goal of life is, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say that's the goal of life. That's one of the cool things you can do in life is to not be so goal or destination or purpose oriented, but give yourself permission just to like do nothing, take a walk in nature with no ultimate aim. Just think about a few sentences from Michael Singer and Sam Jacobs books. And if you do that, you'll have a pretty good life, folks. Um, Sam, this has been great. I mean, I, I, I have a million other freaking talking about values and standing for helping I care, people I care about respect and achieve their goals to the framing your future visioning session and all these kind of things. I've got so many more. Oh, my golly. But, folks, just go get the book. Um, you'll highlight the hell out of it. It's filled with really practical stuff. This guy, uh, look, he not only talks to talk, but he walks the walk. He built a good company. You're all trying to do that. Uh, it's so facto. He's got mold issues in his roof, but that's all right. That's not his fault. That's, uh, <laughs> he's gained serenity uh, from that. Sam, serenity any, any, now. Serenity now. Uh, Sam, any last words before we start to close out this podcast? No, I uh, just really appreciate the opportunity, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being a, a second, a two-time guest, and Woo-hoo. always appreciate your support from the first time that we had that pasta, pasta dinner together. Oh which I don't. God. It's got to be six or seven years ago, if not longer. Yeah, long. We were way overdue. Um, well, folks, thank you for tuning in. Um, yeah, not not much more can be said about this episode. Just the. The, the commitment to gratitude, well, what, what, I would, what I would actually invite you is if you want a way to scale gratitude, love, optimism, and a good go-to-market strategy for your teams in 2023, go check out Pavilion. Joinpavilion.com will be in the show notes below. And check out all the Pavilion universities and the communities and the coaching and all the offerings that they have because... Sam's done a really wonderful job of bringing these core values that you heard from him on the podcast scales throughout his educational community offerings um, through Pavilion. And uh, it's a pretty neat thing. So thank you for tuning into this episode. Again, if you are a loyal listener, we appreciate all your questions, thoughts, comments, concerns. If you are new listeners, hit that subscribe button and share this episode um, specifically to the revenue leaders in your life that are looking to close more deals and do life a better way, taking a long-term approach with kindness, compassion, empathy, and love. Um, Check out joinpavilion.com. Check out Kind Folks Finish First on Amazon, anywhere books are sold. Um, The link will be in the show notes below. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're having a phenomenal day on earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore, and we'll see you next episode.